Welcome to another exciting episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We are back here with you guys uh, for the first timers. Hey guys, I'm Jay and I have here with me. Dr. Cole here. How's it going, everybody? And for our consistent uh, Nailed It team, guys who keep coming back every week, we appreciate you guys coming. Uh, we got another exciting episode that's going to be uh, chocked full of uh, high yield material for you guys. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, but before we get into it, uh, tell them about this, uh, about our YouTube channel, Cody. It's, it's gaining a little traction, man. It so, is, it is. If you have not subscribed yet, go to Nailed It Ortho on YouTube and click subscribe. So we are now doing weekly videos that accompany our um, our audio podcast. And on the videos, you'll have x-rays, classifications. You know, if you're at home and you're just watching a YouTube video in the background, uh, and you need something visual, this is something good for you. And we also have Nailed It Clips, which kind of just shows, you know, five, six minutes of, you know, a high yield part of the podcast. So it may be going over x-rays, maybe going over treatment. And um, just go and hit that subscribe button for us. We need your support, you know. That's, that's all is. I have to say, Jay. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 it. Uh, I think um, I'm thinking it's going to be the next uh, next big move for the for the podcast and we really would appreciate you guys support getting the word out there. Hope it's another uh, avenue of learning that uh, we haven't really tapped into just yet. And it helps some of you guys. So uh, let's just go ahead and introduce our, our guest, Cody, when you get a chance. Oh yeah. This is uh, one of our, one of another one of my attendings, uh, one of our pediatric attendings, Dr. Michael Heffernan. Um, Dr. Heffernan talks to us a little bit more about pediatric femur fractures, but a little bit more about, Dr. Heffernan, he got his medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He completed his residency at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, and then he completed a fellowship in pediatric orthopedics and scoliosis surgery at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. He also serves as the director of Children's Hospital Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery Fellowship Program, and he also uh, leads the department uh, of research in uh, pediatric orthopedics. And he's also on a lot of different committees on national committees, including POSNA, which is the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the Scoliosis Research Society. So he has his hands in a lot of different things. He does a lot, and he took the time out of his day to come and talk to us and educate us a little bit more about pediatric femur fractures. So, without further ado, we hope you all enjoy our episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Heffernan, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on and, you know, especially happy to have you on because you're actually one of my attendees and I've worked with you personally. So... Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for the invite. And we typically start off our podcast with just a couple of questions, getting to know you a little bit better, and then we transition into the case for the day. Mm -hmm. So uh, our first question is kind of the age-old question for you. There may be some residents listening that are trying to figure out what field they want to go into. What made you choose the field of pediatric orthopedics? I entered med school and uh, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician, actually. So my favorite classes the first two years were anatomy and I liked actually cardiac physiology. So in third year, we had one elective. I was scheduled to do pediatric cardiology. Uh, my first rotation was peds and I liked hanging out with the kids. I didn't necessarily like what the, you know, sort of like the daily tasks for the pediatricians. And so my next rotation was general surgery. On the trauma service, the intern that was kind of, a, I was assigned to was an ortho intern. So on a slow day for general surgery, he got me into some ortho cases. I love those cases. Pretty much immediately switched my elective from peds cardiology to peds ortho. Um, did that, let's say, January of my third year, fell in love, and haven't looked back. That's awesome. That's why, that's why I, you know, I always take a little extra time with all our students that come through, no matter if they're interested in 
you know, they know they're interested in ortho, or even if they're saying, hey, I'm thinking about going into medicine, you just never know how things might turn out if, you know, they, they get into one of those cases, like you said, and just realize like, hey, this is, this is pretty cool. And uh, well, I think the opposite is true, too. So meaning you could be dead set on ortho in your first couple of years. And then, you know, it's important if you're a med student um, that you sort of keep an open mind. Same thing for residency. I thought I was going to do, honestly, I thought I was going to go into sports medicine. Um, but, you know, sort of approaching each rotation, keeping an open mind, sort of identifying what you like about it, what you don't like about it. And then, you know, kind of reassessing, you know, what you see yourself doing in the future. And I know a lot of people, at least from my medical school, who, you know, entered third year with one thing in mind, ended up, you know, falling in love with something else. So I think it's important to keep it up in mind. I like your style, Dr. Heffernan. Um, I, I don't know. You know, that's what I tell everybody. But truth of the matter is, I think when I entered into med school, I could have told you I was going to be, I was going into ortho. And uh, I'm still figuring out this fellowship thing, but I, I, I feel like I'm probably going to go into what I said I was going to go into like years ago. And, uh, but like you said, I try, I try my best to keep an open mind. It's just, you know, I always well, I, like, I like your, I like your style too. You didn't quite mention what that is. He's smart, smart guy. <laughs> Taught him well. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know. I guess I never really said what I'm interested in on the podcast. Oh man. Are you, is this the big reveal? Yeah. Yeah. So am I your am I your Barbara Walters, man? Am I about to make you start crying? <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm getting a little teary-eyed over here. No, but, it, you know, things are still in there. You know, I have a checkoff list, and uh, there's two things that's still in there. Like, I've pretty much narrowed off every other subspecialty. The only thing that's left is fine in, in, in uh, adult reconstruction stuff. So, there we go. You know, if 50, you guys 50. follow me in a couple years and I didn't end up into, into one of those, hey, man, something changed. Hey, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but we just got done saying that we should keep an open mind. So even if you, you know, go back on this, I think that's reasonable because that means you you found something else that you uh, were into even more. Absolutely. So we'll see. And let's see. So second question, just so that our uh, so that our fans and listeners can get a, get to know you a little bit. What are some of the things that you'd like to do outside of medicine or outside of ortho? Well, currently my <laughs> thing that I do most is hang out with my girls. So I uh, have a four-year-old and I have a one, almost two-year-old. My younger daughter turns two in December. So, I mean, practically speaking, outside of work stuff, I'm basically watching Trolls World Tour. And today we were trying to figure out how to hit a softball, get frustrated. My older one was getting frustrated with that. I was just putting my kids to bed. My younger one fell asleep and woke up saying, crying that she had poo-poo in her diaper. So I changed a lot of diapers. And um, But outside of that, I like sports. So if I have free time to myself, I'll probably go for a run, um, try to shoot some hoops, something like that. That's excellent. I think it's always um, you know, good to find things outside of medicine. Just like you said, some sports is for you as big thing as your daughter's and you know, that brings you joy after working with you. I know, I know their names and everything. I'm not going to say them now, but um, I know those, the, they bring you joy. So um, let's go ahead and transition, if we, if we can, into our case for the day. And then we'll talk a little bit about pediatric femur fractures. And uh, we have a case that we just kind of came up with here um, off the spot. So say a seven-year-old uh, uh, female came in to the ED with a noticeable thigh deformity after having a fall for swing and they've been unable to ambulate since the injury and your resident calls you and says, oh, they have a uh, femoral shaft fracture. What are the things that residents or even, you know, attendings should be on the lookout for when you're evaluating these patients, whether they be, you know, seven years old, like our case, or we can also cover, you know, the infants that come in with femur fractures as well. So, you know, I guess one of the key things you want to know, I mean, our treatment and going off your guys' slide, our treatment is based on age, at least, you know, sort of like the classification of how we treat, at least the initial approach to it is based on age. Um, you know, we already said the mechanism, we fell off a swing. One of the things that you have to sort of be on the lookout for um, and stay out of trouble with is you want to make sure that the mechanism fits 
the injury. So falling off a swing, twisting your leg or falling awkwardly, that makes sense for a femur fracture. But say for example, the seven, same seven year old girl was just you know sort of walking or running in her backyard and she fell to the ground and couldn't ambulate and was then you know came in and was noted to have a femur fracture you know you'd have to be a little concerned that perhaps there was either a process going on um, that was weakening her bone or perhaps there was a lesion in the bone that would make the bone a little weaker so those are some of the things from a mechanism standpoint you know if you have a high energy trauma it makes sense that you'd have a femur fracture but i would caution folks to be aware if uh, somebody has a mechanism that doesn't really make sense for the femur fracture, she might want to look into the quality of the bone or to really critically analyze the x-rays. You know, um, it's not that that's that common, but it certainly has happened uh, that we've picked up on some bone lesions uh, over the years. So those are, those are the kind of things that I want to make sure when I talk to the resident initially that we've kind of covered. But as of now, it sounds like, you know, seven-year-old, fall from a swing, we think she has a femur fracture, that sounds good. My next question is going to be, you know, what, what else is injured and, what, you know, what was the exam for the rest of her body? Yeah, and, you know, I think, like you mentioned, you know, you mentioned it in passing, like, that's uh, one of the special things about this population, like, they're, they're kids, and, you know, at times they don't talk yet, you know, so you have to really key in on, on what's going on and, and, and you have to play, um, you know, play detective. I guess we always kind of have to play detective, but in this way, even, even more so, just to make sure that all the pieces fit uh, for what you're actually seeing in the uh, ED, in the emergency room. So glad that you mentioned that. Um, so on physical exam, what are some of the things that you're looking at when, when you see these kids as, as far as, you know, are you looking at their skin and is there anything else that we should just key in on just to make sure that we're not missing? So if it's a higher energy trauma, obviously you want to run through, um, you know, primary survey, secondary survey. You want to make sure that there's no other injuries. Um, Open fractures, sure, very uncommon, but certainly you want to look at the skin compartments. Um, in theory, you can have a thigh compartment syndrome. Um, but really, I would say the main thing is just to rule out other fractures. So, you know, again, it's not that common, but you can also fracture tibia at the same time as uh, your femur. You can have a femoral neck fracture. Um, you can have an injury to the knee. It's a little difficult to get a good knee exam when the femur is not intact. Um, so, you know, more observation there and the best knee exam that you possibly can get. Um, but again, ipsilateral um, additional injuries is probably the thing that for a seven-year-old I'd most want to be, would most want to have covered to make sure that there's nothing else that we're missing. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time because, you know, we made our case for a seven-year-old, but a lot of these that come in are two-year-olds and one-year-olds or, you know, patients that can't uh, really speak and, and tell you exactly what happened. And we know one of the big things around, you know, sometimes with pediatric femur fractures is non-accidental trauma. So what are some of the things, you know, on, as part of our history and physical uh, you know, or things that will kind of clue us in towards uh, doing a workup for non-accidental trauma? So the age um, that you really kind of want to be concerned about for non-accidental trauma is under three. Two is kind of commonly reported, but technically, you know, according to like the AOS um, clinical practice guidelines, it's age three that we should, you know, have our ears perked up about that. And especially kids who are not walking. So, you know, I think the rate is something like maybe 15% or 10% under the age of two and 75% in at least one report, if it was before walking age, could be related to non-accidental trauma. So it's one of those things that for the younger kids, we have to sort of make sure that we're consulting the right people. And in my hospital, what it is, is that pretty much everybody under the age of two, not pretty much, the rule is everybody under the age of two with a long bone fracture, we automatically consult social work. 
And, you know, from an orthopedic standpoint, I kind of think that, you know, each hospital should have a policy or an orthopedic, if the hospital doesn't have a policy, an orthopedic department should have a policy. And then the residents, for example, should be made aware of that because I've certainly been called, um, you know, by a resident and sort of get the story where, you know, it's a one and a half year old, really nice family, quote unquote, you know, with a femur fracture. I don't think that, you know, we should be judging, uh, you know, whether it's a nice family or, you know, whether uh, they look um, like somebody that wouldn't abuse their kids or somebody who would. You know, I think sort of using these age cutoffs and being, you know, sticking to that criteria is probably the best way to keep the kids safe and also not to sort of make assumptions about patients and their families. Right. And like you say, you can't, you can't uh, just assume automatically that, you know, oh yeah, they seem like a nice, nice couple. I'm sure they didn't do that, but yeah, you have to kind of keep that suspicion until proven otherwise for sure. Uh, well, I say that I say that for the nice family, but also, you know, for the family that, you know, maybe they woke up and they were in their pajamas and came straight to the emergency room and they don't look as put together. You know, let's not assume the opposite. So it's one of those things that I think having those age criteria um, is kind of the best way to approach it. Yeah, it, it works both ways. And along with that, I'll even say there there are times that you can go in the room and just feel that it's off, too. Yeah, um, I agree. I know I know Cody. He's or sorry, you guys call him Wendell. I call him <laughs> no, little. Call I call him I call him little baby brother Cody. <laughs> but um, okay. you know after <laughs> after you um, you know if you've seen as like a resident, you know when you're on call during the summertime or when it's hot out, I mean, you, you get these kids, you might get 15, 20 kids in a night. You do it over and over again. You kind of get a, a sense for when you walk in the room, just how things feel. And I, I remember really clearly, like one time I walked in a room, it was a fracture or something like this. And I mean, it was just off. None of it made sense. The way mom was acting didn't make sense. The way dad was acting didn't make sense. It was just off and you can just feel it. And uh, it's, right. it's good to, uh, you know, make sure that the appropriate uh, protocols are in place so that you know who to talk to to make sure that things are worked up appropriately. Um, but I think we did. Oh, and are there any specific fracture patterns that you should look for with these in the femur as well? Anything like transverse femur uh, fractures that may uh, cause more issues? I think uh, distal, metaphyseal and things like that. Yeah. So the ones that you know, if you're looking at general shaft fractures, um, transverse is most associated with um, with abuse. And I think when I was in training, the teaching was actually spiral, but there's been additional studies that have come out that, uh, you know, sort of have pointed us in the direction towards transverse. And then there's some specific fractures that are more concerning um, for abuse, and those are corner fractures or bucket handle fractures, which are kind of the same thing. Basically, that's an avulsion of the metaphysis that's right adjacent to the physis or the growth plate. A bucket handle fracture is essentially a, a bigger version of a corner fracture, but those are also ones that we'd have to be uh, weary of. And in, in these patients that, you know, they come in, it's a two-year-old, or you know, an eight-month-old with a transverse femur fracture. Do you typically get a skeletal survey as well, like when in our in our workup for non-accidental trauma? Is that with every patient? Is that with some? How do you how do you work that out? So the social work consult is with every patient, and the skeletal survey is based on concern either of the emergency room physician, um, social work or if a discussion amongst everyone thinks that it's warranted to pursue further imaging. So it's not that every single one of those patients gets a skeletal survey, but at least at our institution, but every single one gets a um, social work consult. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, it's good to know. I, I always thought it was just like, like I was, like we were mentioning, just having the protocols in place to like, Hey, when, when you see this, there's a chain that, that these things have to go up the line to. And, you know, you explain it to the patient, like, hey, we're not necessarily saying that you did anything, but this is 
what we got to do when we see these types of injuries. So uh, I think that's always very helpful and it keeps the, the kids safe for sure. Um, so going into, and just to mention, I think we've already went over some very high yield things that uh, come up with these uh, fractures that you'll see in different question banks. So I'm glad that we're spending a little time on just kind of the workup, uh, but heading towards treatment, what, what factors do you take into mind when it comes to how to treat these fractures? So the basic way to think about how treatment of pediatric femur fractures works is basically based on age. And so, you know, if you go zero to six months, um, basically most people, the evidence would say that you could do either a spike and cast or a pavlic harness, but that there's really no advantage of the spike and cast over a pavlic harness. So most people will use a pavlic harness. The ability of the femur to remodel at that age is remarkable. So there's really no reduction performed. Um, and the pavlic harness is predominantly for comfort measure um, while the femur fracture is healing. So, um, you know, so that's zero to six months. And then as we move forward, six months to let's say five years, we're basically looking at spike casting being the gold standard. There's some that in certain situations, whether that be high energy trauma or, um, you know, other psychosocial or uh, social needs uh, for the family will consider flexible nails in some of the slightly older preschool kids. Uh, but again, the gold standard spike at casting there based on the age criteria. And then age five or six to about 11, uh, we would be looking at flexible nails. Okay. Now, if you read a book chapter, it'd be flexible nails for stable fractures and consideration of a um, submuscular plate for unstable fracture patterns. In my practice, it basically jumps from spiky cast to flexible nails to rigid nail. And we kind of skip over uh, the submuscular plate for me. Um, but there are other, and that's mostly here at our institution. And I know at some other institutions, it's pretty flex nail heavy. But there are other institutions and other surgeons um, you know, who have a bigger interest in submuscular plating. And then for kids that are bigger, and as we get into the adolescence, we're looking at rigid nails. Um, similar to adults, the only difference is that the entry point is uh, slightly different where we avoid a piriformis starting point due to the risk for avascular necrosis. So, you know, for a general overview, that's, that would be sort of the age-based treatment uh, algorithm. Okay. And if we could go back a little bit to say starting at the kid that's less than six months old. Um, yeah. So in the emergency department, mom is, mom is just, she is, you know, she can't believe this happened. She's so sorry that she turned her head for a second and baby Joey fell off the bed or whatever may happen. Uh, like what are some of the things you taught you're telling mom? to look for once we, once they, the kid is in these different devices, like the pavlic harness, what are some of the things that you may tell mom that, okay, this is how this is going to go. And we'll probably have him in this for how long and things like that. Okay. So for somebody that's that young, honestly, they're going to heal almost basically in like two weeks, but I'd probably keep the pavlic on. I generally keep it on for about three weeks, see them back in clinic and we'll take it off. I emphasize that it's for comfort only. And, you know, some of the positional issues, and I see that's on your slide, um, you know, whether you use a pavlic harness for uh, developmental dysplasia of the hip, or if it's for a femur fracture, there are a couple things that you want to avoid. You want to avoid flexing the hip too much in a pavlic harness, okay? And the reason is because if it's flexed too much, you can get femoral nerve palsy. Thing that we would notice with that, um, would be that you'd have decreased quad function. So, you know, a six month old is not gonna follow an exam to command, but, you know, you observe them in clinic and even in the pelvic harness, you know, they should be able to extend um, and flex their knee and you'd be able to observe that. So that'd be one of the things that they would wanna look out for. And then the other thing is um, you don't want to have too much abduction 
um, fixed into the pavlic harness uh, because if you have too much abduction or if it's too tight, then that can lead to avascular necrosis of the femoral head. And you know, from my perspective, you got to keep in mind that again, like I said from the beginning, when it comes to this public, comes to the public harness, our treatment is for comfort. So if the only reason we're treat, you know, using the public is mostly for the infant's comfort, we certainly, you know, want to avoid making it too tight, either too tight in hip flexion or too tight in abduction. So if anything, you would want this public harness to be, you know looser than it needs to be as opposed you know error on the side of being, it being too loose as opposed to it being too tight because unlike ddh where you're kind of using the pavlic to mold the femoral head and the acetabulum and it's like being used as a tool this is kind of being used as um an ace wrap almost or um a very mild splint so you know with that in mind you certainly don't want to end up with a femoral nerve palsy or avn Absolutely. And I saw one time, you know, if you happen to have one of these kids that's just an all-star and for some reason they're like crawling at a really young age, you might have to think of something different uh, than the, the public harness sometimes just to keep them from, uh, you know, running around, well, crawling around like they, they want to try. So I um, only had that happen like one time, but uh, something to keep in mind. Definitely. So, but what, the other point to these kids is that these fractures heal very, very fast. Which is so amazing to me. I, I think that, that that's the whole, you know, overall theme in pediatrics. I mean, put a, a grocery bag around it and pretty much it heals itself. <laughs> grocery know. bag. Yeah, I that's mean, true. really, you, you put a Kroger bag on it and I mean, give it a little time and next thing you know, it's like brand new again. It's, it's amazing. If my if if our ER runs out of Pavlix, I think maybe next time I'll uh, try the grocery bag. <laughs> tell get a Kroger bag. <laughs> Works yeah. like a charm. Works like a charm. Well, different region. We'll tell the residents to run to Win Dixie. <laughs> there we go. There oh, we there go. go. And, and so another couple of things I wanted to touch on were um, some of the complications or the things to be on the lookout for when we're spike casting uh, these kids with these pediatric femur fractures, like how. Uh, what what fractures can go in a spike of cast and then what are some things we want to be on the lookout for when we're putting a spike of cast on and, and, and with these patients? So spike of cast, basically, again, gold standard, let's say six months. And as a, certainly as you're approaching a year up to five years of age, um, what were sort of, you know, in terms of fractures that are amenable, amenable to a spiky cast, technically pretty much anything with the exception of, um, I would say, an open fracture, probably fix that. Um, if there was a lot of soft tissue um, abrasions, say, for example, it was peds versus auto, and, you know, somebody, a patient was dragged on the gravel and you were really concerned about the skin, that might be a contraindication for a spiky cast. Um, but for the vast majority of those kids, it's at least appropriate that that would be the first line treatment um, for kids at that age. Um, in terms of fracture characteristics, we would like to see, we would like the fracture to be less than two, two centimeters of shortening or about two centimeters of shortening. There's a little bit of debate with that because somebody, some people will allow for almost up to three centimeters of shortening, um, you know, before they get concerned about leg length discrepancy long-term. Um, and then angulation, you know, for a two to five-year-old, in the coronal plane, you can accept 15 degrees of angulation. Sagittal, there's more remodeling, so you can accept 20 degrees. Um, and again, shortening, Basically, we use two centimeters as the cutoff, but certainly I have used a spike of casting kids with slightly more than two centimeters. And, you know, with long-term follow-up, they did not have a significant leg length difference. Um, in terms of the application, uh, you wanna make sure obviously to keep enough room for perineal care, diapering, things like that. You want enough room for the abdomen so that it's not too tight in the abdomen the way we you know, ensure that is we'll place towels on the abdomen. I will typically also put one towel on either side just because sometimes the abdomen will sort of, the 
cast over the abdomen will protrude and there'll be enough room there but on the sides it's still a little too tight and the families will complain about that so a way around that is just not a thick amount of towels but one towel on each side as well i usually will try to use a one leg spica um, that really facilitates uh, earlier ambulation for the kids uh, care for the families uh, sometimes with a single leg spike, the kids can even fit into a car seat. And so, you know, I think there's some great advantages and there's some literature to support that single leg spike works in the vast majority of these fractures, as well as a one and a half leg spike as pictured on your slide. Um, so I guess off the top of my head, those are some of the things I'm thinking about with spica. And so, yeah, like you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned that we, at at our institution, we have to make sure that the kid has, um, first you have to go through kind of like training just for care with mom and dad. And then you also, they have to have a special type of car seat. Um, um, I don't know, kind of like an attachment before, well, before they leave. Yeah, kind of like the one you sit in, Jay. Oh, that, <laughs> yeah. was, that was good, Cody. He, he's, been, <laughs> he's been saving that one up all night. All right, great job, man. <laughs> That was low. No, it's called an, it, yeah, he's probably sitting in an, it's called an easy on vest. So there's this vest basically that can attach to the child if they can't fit into the car seat. So if you have a one and a half or two leg spica and there's too much abduction and can't fit in the car seat, um, you can use this thing called an easy on vest, which basically straps around the patient and their cast. And then the seat belt somehow straps into the easy on vest and the kid sort of lays as opposed to sitting up, they're sort of laying in the back seat. There are also more recently, there are actual car seats that can accommodate um, spike cast patients. They're really expensive, but um, you know, hospitals can buy those too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just to like a little plug to my, uh, to my institution, there, you know, this was one of those things that um, I was pretty nervous about the entire time I was taking call <laughs> at the, the children's hospital because, you know, at, at, in the middle of the night, this might just kind of be you and a few people in the emergency department who have no idea what's going on. So you have to kind of talk through it sometime. Um, but we have on ViewMedi, and some of you guys don't know what ViewMedi is, and if not, you should look into it. But my, some of my attendees have a awesome video on how to do these spica casts. It's like a, I don't know, 15-minute video on how to do a proper spica cast. And, I mean, it got me through the night plenty of times. And um, you'll be surprised how many times you'll get these fractures over and over and over again. It happens pretty often, a little bit more than what you would think. So it's good to keep that in mind. Sure, they're proud of you right now listening to this. If they, if they are, I'm sure they'd be proud of you. Probably either that or they'd be like, man, he looked at that video and the kid was still that that cast was still that bad. Like, oh my god, <laughs> one or two, yeah, one or the other. All right, um, so, yeah, yeah. So I, I'd like to, um, we can probably go ahead and, and move. I, I want to just touch quick, not quickly. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the kids that we we treat with the elastic nailing and and if Doctor Heaven, if you could, if you could kind of just talk about what that is, um, what kids that are you know pediatric patients that we would treat using these nails and anything you know any tips that you would give regarding the nails whether it's the canal fill or how you start the nails or um, you know if there's a weight uh, that that you would stop and, and not use elastic nails to treat these uh, patients you know yeah so um, for me that for kids that are five to let's say 11 I would say that's my go-to plan um, for almost every femur. In fact, when I started practice, I was I really wanted to do a submuscular plate. And in fellowship, I really wanted to find a case that I could do a submuscular plate on. And we really were able just to use flex nails for almost everything, including you know, unstable fracture patterns. In fact, in Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics last month, there was an article that uh, was looking at um, stable versus unstable fractures and the use of flex nails. And they found that, um, and that was out of LA, they found that using flex nails for unstable fracture patterns was certainly 
a good option in their hands. And that's something that I've found as well. Um, in terms of the concept, so, you know, the ideal situation for a flex nail is, or a titanium flexible nail, is a mid-shaft beam refractor that's transverse. Okay, so that's sort of like the base of where we're starting from. And the way that you put the nails in is you sort of put a bend to the nails so that the convexity or the maximal separation of the nail, the two nails, occurs at the fracture site. And so it's the shape of the nail that sort of confers fracture stability, as opposed to, you know, the, um, you know, if you take a rigid nail for the older kids, it's the rigidity of the nail that confers the stability. But with flexible nails, it's actually sort of the shape and where that bend interacts with the bone, um, basically like a three-point mold, essentially, um, and that kind of confers the stability. Okay, so that's your ideal situation. But then there's plenty of fractures that are either in the proximal third, the distal third, or they're unstable patterns. And so there's, a, there's some subtleties to that. One of the main things I guess I would point out is for proximal third fractures, I've found that if you look at the shape of the nails there, pretty much you've already passed the maximal convexity or the maximal separation and the fracture um, you know, at that point, the nails are essentially straight. So they're kind of acting like just a rigid nail. So I've switched from using titanium nails for those fractures to stainless steel nails, uh, because conceptually now I feel like the nail there is providing stability because of the rigidity of the nail as opposed to the shape. So that's kind of like one subtle thing that I've learned over time. Um, and for those proximal third fractures, which can have some muscular forces on them that won't cause them to want to displace, what I originally did when I was using titanium nails for that, I occasionally would have to use a one-leg spiky cast to kind of supplement the nail for a week or two, um, just until the fracture got sticky because it really wasn't strong enough. Then I switched to stainless steel, and I've subsequently not had to put any cast on for those proximal fractures. Um, in terms of the starting point, basically the predominance of these nails, we start both of them distally, uh, and that's sort of like your middle picture there. Uh, you basically locate where the physis is on fluoroscopy, and you want to go about two, two and a half centimeters proximal to that for your starting point. I use an awl. Some people use a drill in order to create the hole in order to pass the nails. I will pass both of the nails from both medial and lateral sides up to the fracture site, and then we start working on reducing the fracture. Once the fracture is reduced, I'll start passing the nails. And one thing about passing those is similar to reaming for a rigid nail, kind of have to have the fracture reduced. It doesn't have to be perfectly reduced. And in the book, you'll see like this, or you'll see it described where you kind of use the flexible nail to uh, do the reduction. What I've found is you can tweak the reduction with the nail, but if the two pieces are totally off and you just randomly get one of the nails from the distal fragment into the proximal fragment, but they're nowhere close, the nails are not strong enough to actually do the reduction. You have to have it pretty much reduced before you pass the nails. Um, and you know i guess that's that's it I is what i would start with we try to do those closed occasionally we have to open um, the fractures we just published a study recently that looked at uh, fractures that had to be opened when trying to do the fracture site open when doing flexible nails and we found that higher energy higher energy trauma um, initial displacement and distal third fractures were more likely to be open before I open the fracture, I'll try some other stuff. For example, uh, using Steinman pins in either of the fragments, to try to get control and try to get a reduction with that. Um, but occasionally we'll have to open the fracture site to be able to pass the nails. I think that was an, um, an excellent review on talking about nails, these elastic nails, how to use them, the approach, you know, how to, even the technical parts about how you uh how you align or reduce your fraction and get the nails up and one thing i wanted to touch on was that the it's it kind of say what the the 
the nails, you want it to fill up about 80% of the diameter of the canal uh, when you're using these. Is that, is that correct? Or is that something that you've kind of seen in your, uh, throughout your practice or your, your knowledge? Yeah, so, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that in one small technical point. So the general thing that you look at is you measure the isthmus, which is gonna be the most narrow aspect of the shaft. Um, you can measure that on the AP and the lateral. They usually should be the same. I usually err on the one that seems bigger. Um, and then you multiply that by 0.4 and that should give you the size of your nail. So basically you take the isthmus and our goal is kind of to fill 80% of that, okay? Um, there are some more recent studies that looked at um, fractures where you had 80% or greater fill and then less than 80%. And even if you have less than 80%, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's pretty low to where you start getting increased complications. So we always shoot for the 80%, but if you don't quite get 80%, um, you know, you're probably still gonna have a successful outcome. So again, talking to the, if I'm sort of in between, um, in between sizes, say for example, they come in 0.5, you know, in terms of the millimeters. So you have two, 2.5, three, 3.5, four, 4.5. Um, if I am in between nail sizes, I will sometimes, I usually prefer to go down a size and use a stainless steel nail um, as opposed to trying to stuff a bigger uh, titanium nail in. So one of the issues is, you know, if you try to overstuff the isthmus, and especially if that's right at the fracture site, that can make passing the nails pretty difficult. And again, the stainless steel nails, because they're a little more stout or have a, a little more firmness to them, um, you can confer essentially the same um, stability at the fracture site with a slightly smaller nail. These are perfect. I mean, you can't get these types of uh pearls unless it's from somebody with uh, a lot of experience so we appreciate you dropping all these gems on our podcast it's going to help someone for sure oh yeah but I wish that, I being, had this that being said if it's a that being said if it's a test it's you know it's size times 0.4 right 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 that's yeah that's good to know too right there's there's test answers and then there's you know actual clinical practice so we have to separate the two sometimes um so when do we use the uh you know, the intramedullary, the same type of nails that you would consider for like adults. When, when do you start making that transition in the kids? And also, is there any differences that you have to keep in mind, like starting points and things like that? Yeah, so I make that transition in the teenage years. And <laughs> I guess there's not a specific age for me on that. And similarly, on the other side, for flexible nails, you know, I routinely routinely use them over age five, but I certainly consider them in some kids as young as age three. Um, but on the other side, I think the, the oldest and or heaviest, let's say heaviest child that I put flexible nails in, um, I think was probably like 11 or maybe 10, but weighed 160 pounds. So the one thing we didn't cover is historically the weight limit for flexible nails has been thought to be 50, 49 or 50 kilograms, so about 100 pounds. Um, there's been more recent literature that supports using flex nails in heavier kids, and I've definitely done that and been successful. Um, but as the kids start becoming teenagers, and that's variable, right? You know, kids, skeletal maturity, their size, um, not all 11-year-olds are the same. Not all 12-year-olds are the same. So there could be a 12-year-old that I put flex nails in because they're so small, um, but there could be a 10 or 11-year-old that, you know, according to the age criteria, we'd first consider flex nails, but I end up using a rigid nail. So I guess the transition, you know, if you forced me to say, where does that transition fall? I guess 11 or 12, but there's some, some gray there. In terms of starting point um, you know positioning uh, is very similar to adults so some people use fracture table and I occasionally use a fracture table 
and some people use flat top tables and assistance to sort of hold and pull um, and I also do that and uh, I actually picked that up from residency residents where uh, Cody's a resident Wendell sorry yeah no, um, either name and so <laughs> So that's for positioning. In terms of start point, we start a little more lateral. So in adults, um, you know, there's still troke entry nails, but people also will use piriformis start points. In kids or in folks who are a little bit more skeletally immature and or, um, you know, smaller proximal femoral anatomy, we're a little bit more concerned about ABN. And so, we end up using a more lateral start point, meaning even lateral to the tip of the trope. So, you know, really to avoid that. I think the rate of um, osteonecrosis in the literature is probably, I think it's around 5%. So, and that's kind of a devastating complication. So we definitely don't want to see that. I guess I, or I, I didn't realize it was so high, to be honest. I always thought that it was one of those things that are, you know, it, it makes sense that it will cause, you know, a vascular necrosis, but it, it wasn't actually being seen a whole lot in the literature. But yeah, that's good to know that. I mean, yeah, because I mean, 5%, that's, that's a lot to deal with in a young kid, because now you have some real issues that you're going to have to work out and um, probably have to have a couple, you know, at least one other surgery to try to fix this issue. So yeah, it's definitely good to keep that in mind. And it's very high yield for, you know, and question banks and things like that. So definitely need to keep that in mind when doing questions and things like that. Yeah, from a question standpoint, it's basically, you know, avoid piriformis starting points in pediatric patients or young adolescent patients because of the risk of osteonecrosis. Um, and a percentage, I'm not, you know, I think it's 5%. You guys would have to look that one up, but it's enough. And even one would be terrible. So, right. yeah, at, at, yeah. At the end of the day, right? I mean, even if that one percent, you don't want it to be your patient or your child. So, I mean, absolutely, it's it's definitely worthwhile of trying to avoid that if if best possible, for sure. And um, are there, you know, before we wrap up here, are there any complications or things that we should be on the lookout for long term? these pediatric patients that end up having these femur fractures that end up getting nailed um, with either flexible nails, uh, retrograde, or, you know, possibly our anterior grade um, uh, rigid intramedullary nails? So I guess we'll go for each one of them. We talked about some of the complications with Pavlik, um, that being um, femoral nerve palsy, AVN, spike casting, um, you know, in the short term, there's issues with cast. You can have uh, skin complications. In theory, you could have, there's reports in the literature of compartment syndrome, full thickness, skin loss that required, um, you know, plastics intervention. Um, for kids who have some shortening, I usually will follow them up to two years to make sure that there's no permanent effect from that um, and that they've sort of, uh, you know, equalized out or gotten close enough. The rate of overgrowth, the reason we're willing to accept some of that shortening is that we, you know, it's been shown that there's the potential for overgrowth with the fracture. And that's about a centimeter, it's just under a centimeter. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. Um, so leg length discrepancy is one of the things. Uh, with flexible nails, the issue is, you know, in the literature, it says that, you know, there's a pretty high rate of implant irritation. I really haven't seen that in my practice. So, you know, I've seen as high as like 30, 40%, but it's very rare that somebody actually complains of implant irritation. Um, but that's one of the things to look for with flex nails. Um, submuscular plating. You know, generally speaking, depending on the age, both the flex nails and the submuscular plates, we're likely going to take those out just because of the growth potential of, you know, like a six or a seven-year-old. Um, if the femur grows a lot and, you know, now all of a sudden the end of the nail or the end of the plate is in the mid shaft, it's kind of creating a bad stress riser. So routinely we'll take those out. Submuscular plates are 
pretty easy to put in submuscularly, a little bit more difficult to take out. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the reasons I kind of shy away from the submuscular plates. Um, and yeah, I think that's, I guess, rotational malalignment. Mm -hmm. You know, again, these kids have a lot of remodeling potential. I guess malrotation is not supposed to really remodel. But again, just from my clinical practice, I haven't seen a lot of malrotated femurs that we've done, whether that be in a spiky cast where, you know, we're not really controlling the rotation that much, um, flexible nails where we don't really have that great of control of rotation. Um, and the rigid nails, you know, obviously we do our checks uh, as we should in the operating room and kind of confirm that we have good rotation before we finish the case. All right, Dr. Heffernan, I think we've done it. I, I think I think you've done it. I think uh, we went over a lot of high yield uh, topics on femur fractures in pediatrics. I, I think we, we hit on a lot of things that you'll see on your tests that you'll see in the emergency department, that you'll see in your clinical practice. So I really want to pre just say thank you for coming on to the show and dropping all these good, uh, all this good knowledge for us. Gentlemen, I appreciate it. It's almost 11 o'clock your time, um, Jay Fitz. So. <laughs> it's okay. The, the, the grind never stops. The grind never stops. <laughs> I like it. Well, I think you guys are great, and I love this thing that you're doing. Absolutely. And before you go, Dr. Heffernan, we always ask our guests, uh, is there a way that our listeners can reach out to you, whether it's your email or, uh, or maybe some of your social media handles or anything like that that you have available? <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> one of, <laughs> that's funny, one of Wendell's co-residents convinced me to uh, start an Instagram. So there we doc <laughs> Dr. Dr. Hef Ortho is I guess my handle. I guess. Oh, you changed it. <laughs> Why? Yeah, it was Mike Heffern and MD before, but now it's Dr. Hepworthow. Ah, okay. Um, and then my email, people can email me. It's mhef1 at lsuhsc.edu. Awesome. Awesome. Again, everyone that's listening in or watching on YouTube, thank you guys for spending time with us and see you back next week. Take care. <laughs>